0: You know, it's, uh, the, the question you raise, and I'm going to phrase it for other people in a, a general way, because it really is a common problem. You're just bringing it up in a particular context, a particular group context, which is when there's, um, you know, whether it's uh, two people or whether it's two groups of people, or I imagine two organizations or two political parties or two countries, um, but when there's two, and they're opposed to each other in a certain way, and they get into a certain level of tension, and, and it doesn't get better. Um, it doesn't spur a natural move towards a meaningful synthesis. Um, then uh, I think the question is, where, where do you go with that, or how do you think about that? And while I couldn't know for sure, How I would think about it uh, if I was actually there um, I'll give you some general thoughts that I have about this problem Um, so on in in your I'll just say I've encountered a similar dialectic similar disagreement uh, in different places one is among groups of psychiatrists sometimes when on the one hand there are people who are very focused on uh, detailed uh, exposition of symptoms, counting symptoms of getting diagnosis very clear, even if there's four diagnoses, there's four separate diagnoses. You think carefully about the implications of each of those things, and it's a detail-oriented approach um, that really is uh, into um, breaking things down, categorizing things, and then arriving as a result of, of ways to proceed, um, and then there's other people who take a different approach. Uh, not that someone can't entertain both, but often these are are, uh, are on opposite sides of people who really are groupers. Uh, they're they're grouping together uh, diagnoses, and they're more interested in in the dimensions that cross diagnoses. They're more interested in this commonalities. Across diagnoses or across different patients or across different problems and uh, into the interested in the dynamics of those people and the concepts that hold things together. And they, um, you know, they value um, uh, understanding things, grasping things in a comprehensive and often intuitive way compared to the ones on the other side that really um, try to stay close to a more detail oriented scientific approach and so this can become i mean you could have this in a couple two people could have this kind of difference um and and be at constantly uh at war with each other about this unless uh if an, anybody else is listening i'm just in the middle of commenting on um on a problem brought up by somebody uh about uh two groups that uh were are in opposition about something and i was trying to I'm, making some comments about that um, if you are on let me ask you to be and and because you are un, unmuted uh, if anybody can really just try to make it so that there's not other noises coming into here um, just because the recording will preserve those unfortunately um, so you know I think you have those two approaches and and they and there's when you just describe it like when you just describe it the way I did and this is one of the values of description of describing which is going to be one of the main topics today um, is you lay it out like that and i think a lot of people would say well what's the problem um, you know why are why are people at odds about this or how does this take shape as a uh, huge disagreement that can't easily be settled by saying yeah well both of these approaches are valuable uh, lumpers are valuable splitters are valuable You know, as as Linehan, in developing DBT, um, called it, it's a protocol-based approach with principles. Other times she called it a principle-based approach with protocols. But it is exactly this kind of dialectic. It is uh, the scientist in her uh, that's taking protocols straight from cognitive behavioral... The, so that there's the uh, there's the approach of really being detailed and knowing all strategies, knowing all skills, and using them exactly appropriately, uh, in an adherent way. And uh, and then there's the people who feel like by trying to do that they it, they they it's too much detail, it's too much rigidity, too much control. And they more believe in kind of like borrowing from those things, but thinking in a way that crosses boundaries and that's more flexible. And, you know, there's a value to both approaches. In fact, the book that I wrote, um, uh, DBT Principles in Action, uh, is exactly based on that. It's that I, I wanted to spell out the principles of DBT in some detail and then go back into treatment uh, examples and say, well, how would this affect you? And the main way it affects you is it, it doesn't mean you have to give up being adherent to the treatment model, but it does mean you uh, become probably more flexible and you have to make sure that your flexibility doesn't uh, go past the border of whether you're still doing the treatment. So it's that kind of dialectic that gives me a little hope for any group, um, though it it really depends on how stuck people are. And based on what I've been teaching in this podcast and what I'm going to continue to teach today, uh, I do think that the beginning approach, um, and Sandy, you know, I'm presenting this not knowing, I'm knowing that when you suggest a first draft of a proposal like I'm uh, doing now, uh, I may not know enough to know where this will run aground. But um, it's still basically the approach I take uh, in some ways in working with uh, couples who are in conflict, families where there's intense conflict, uh, and, and if it were two groups, and I used to do uh, organizational consulting, um, I would see this kind of thing. So the first thing I would do is based on uh, these last couple of podcasts on observing, just seeing reality for what it is. And I would want to get in a room with people if I want to be practical about this and say, look, guys, um, first let's, um, let's see if we agree that there is a problem. Um, and if so, because uh, what i observe observed to be the problem is that you guys over here on my left uh, take this approach and uh, have this style Of thinking and you on the right have take this approach and have this style of thinking and you're in collision with each other these are these are different ways to go about um, solving things and setting things up and so would you guys agree because I would want to be stopping at every point and say you know because let's explore this without knowing what we can do about it but let's see if we can understand it better and I would want to use observing Um, and describing of both sides. And um, one way I might do that, uh, well, there are a couple things I think of practically. Um, One, I borrow from what we do in DBT when you work with a family and an adolescent, where you use those uh, dialectical dilemmas, put them up on a whiteboard, or use a handout or a poster or something. I prefer to go up to a whiteboard um, because it... Um, one thing you want to do when people are so personally wedded to a position is to try to help get away from the focus on the person and more on the focus of the position. because what you're trying to find is a way that both positions, um, the interests of both parties can hang in there and be part of the solution. And so you'd like to when you talk to people, they seem to feel wedded to their position, and, and, and we all get defensive about our positions. But if you get up to a whiteboard and say, okay, let me draw a diagram up here, and with, you know, with the family of an uh, adolescent, you've got these various uh, dimensions or dialectics, and, so, uh, and I, then I say, look, everybody goes this way as a family. Um, at one end, when we get anxious as a family, we end up, uh, somebody in the family ends up taking the position of being over, overly controlling. Like, let's solve this by clamping down everything. And someone else takes the position at the other end of that line of being extremely kind of lenient. Well, look, let's not come down so hard. Let's let it, let's go with it and see what happens. And then there's these two things, and they are, in a way, at war with each other, even though there's wisdom on both sides of this. And there's these other dimensions like that. So I've, I've always found it useful, even with a family that there is, is in uh, intense conflict and barely speaking to each other, as I, I can sort of get people engaged in, uh, let's look at this and get, take one step removed from exactly what each of you is saying right now, and can you see how a family would go this way, and, hey, by the way, I wonder if you see yourself in this and I wonder if you see other people in this and you start to get people on the whiteboard and you get differences of opinion about where people are but it 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 brings the discussion outside of the individuals it sort of gives everybody including the the therapist something to focus on so if you're consultants I think it, it can help to get up there and objectify the conflict in some way like that and in in the case of the kind of thing you brought up I might just draw one line and say at one end of this line is people who think in one way and at the other end are people who seem to prefer thinking in, a, in another way. And then I would move to asking each side, one at a time, to do something like the following. And I'm ta- not talking about a family uh, right now, but I would apply, it, I'd apply the same idea within a family. But if it was two groups of professionals or people in an organization, I would... Uh, I would ask one side to interview the other side to totally let go of their of their side for the moment, interview the other side in detail to get their position so that they can really articulate it the way you would prepare for a debate, even though you're going to take the side that's opposite the position you usually hold, so that you can really state it and so you observe it by interviewing. you get into it inquire get to know their side and then describe it articulate their side and then ask that side is this a reasonable approximation of of what of what you guys are doing and why and then go at, go the other way so this doesn't yet solve it necessarily but to me this is the beginning and it's why I'm starting in the whole podcast with observing and describing, because these are basic building block tools that are so important, so crucial. And if you skip them, you're just, you know, you're ju- jumping into uh, maybe you're using techniques, but you're still kind of uh, in the middle of the war with it, and it can be confusing. Here, you really lay out um, observing both sides, and then the person who's doing the consulting can describe try to describe the uh, difference of the two sides and invite both parties then to brainstorm together about is there some way we can interface around this particular situation maybe you pick one that's, cha- that's challenging or one that's somewhat challenging and you know what, what would it look like if we actually um, saw the wisdom of both positions and took the wisdom of both positions and as you know Sandy from training and stuff is that's being that's the essence of being dialectical in dbt and I think in life. Um, so, let me ask you, just having said those things, because what I would probably do next to, you know practically, after having people walk through that, and if they wouldn't do it, that's another problem uh, between me and them and uh, and if they would do it, but they just don't put much energy into it, I would see if they can put a little more into it. Um, but then I would drop it. Uh, I would not say, okay, now let's find that synthesis. I would say, you know, the next step is going to be brainstorming ways to do it. But I might at that point just say, but this is enough for now. Let's just stop. Because otherwise, as a consultant, you adopt the, the, uh, de- the ta- job definition of you're supposed to solve this. So if you try to take it, the next step, um, it's just too much uh, to expect of yourself. And uh, if, by saying, okay, well, this is enough. We've now heard each other's positions. Let's just think about this, and, and let's talk again about it next week. I would think about doing something like that, because once you've done that, um, you've laid the groundwork for something more creative to happen, if, if it could. Um, when you emailed me about this kind of problem, I Um, I immediately thought, yes, this is all about needing to be really good at observing and then describing. And the describing should be as factual, as descriptive, as behavioral, and just bare bones as possible, Um, so that you're not jumping into making assumptions or hypotheses about why anybody's saying anything, but you're just sort of saying, oh, so, so here's how you think this should be solved, and you name it and try to get it right, and then basically describe it so sandy let me ask you if if this does speak in some way to the to the problem even though I've had to remain a little bit general
1: I think it's uh, actually very very helpful I particularly liked the strategy of uh, moving away from the people um, because um, body language you can kind of see there was a lot of unspoken uh, language, if you will, between the two factions, and I love the idea of a whiteboard to be able to um, uh, get the focus somewhere else. I also love the idea of interviewing the other side. I, I think that's a, a great, it's a very paradoxical approach that you should have to understand the other person's side and, and be able to present a different um, approach. And uh, lastly, I, I like the idea of, of not uh, forcing a solution right mm-hmm. away because I think that's part of what the invalidation is between the the, um, the lumpers and the splitters, if you will, is that um, there's this invalidation that your approach is invalidating my approach. And I think mm-hmm. if, if we can just get them to describe the two and the values of the two without forcing a solution but then allowing some of that to marinate if you will for for a week i think that would be very very helpful mm-hmm.
0: oh good yeah i like that because um uh, though i mean it'll be a later podcast or podcasts that i'll talk specifically about being dialectical um, in life as a way of trying to cope with difficult things but um this is, you know, this is an example. And I, what I like about that is, I prefer to allow it, uh, allow a solution to come about after you've spelled out, in a factual and non-judgmental way, if you've spelled out a difference between two parties or two positions, is then sort of like to put that out there, make sure it's all understood, and then uh, not force a solution, but allow one. Um, and it might take a while, but you know, there's the difference of being very outcome-focused. Like, okay, we've talked about this now. Now we've got to come up with a, a middle path or something that's going to fix this. And um, I think what that does is it increases anxiety and it shuts down on creativity. Um, and I think being dialectical is more in the process than in the uh, that, than in a quick outcome. It's more valuable to say, you know, you guys have both laid out very compelling cases I don't know what we're gonna do let's talk again next week and just kind of leave it out there and you never know who's gonna wake up uh, in the middle of the night during the week and some somebody on one side is gonna wake up and say you know these guys aren't that bad (laughs) they they really (laughs) there's something about that I guess there are different kinds of thinkers aren't there Um, yeah you just hope that you can uh, take a lightweight approach to that rather than grinding Um, it reminds me of when parents uh, it's another time when observing and describing is very crucial and I haven't yet even talked in the podcast about describing yet but I will in a little bit Um, but the uh, if you let's say that uh, you're a couple of parents or a single parent and you have a child that now is in their 20s and they live at home and they stay in their room And they come out and hang out once in a while and they come and get something to eat. Um, And they do stuff online and they listen to some music. And they don't work and they don't go to school. And while they used to seem very capable and talented and promising in some ways, they've fallen into a pattern that from the parent's point of view looks quite stagnant. And therefore the parent is now not just observing what's going on Uh, the parent is now jumping naturally I I can easily imagine I'm a parent and I haven't had this exact dilemma but I've had one I could imagine relate to this and you get into a an anxious position and you start to think um, gee I'm observing my uh, let's say it's your daughter I'm observing my daughter uh, staying home all the time and she's not meeting anybody she's not going anywhere And I'm just extrapolating into the future and think, how is she going to have a life? How is she going to make a living? How is she going to have a social life? I mean, this is such a great young person, and look at what's happening. She's wasting her time. And all of these statements after the initial one, the initial one is just observing. Okay, she does this, she does that. She stays here, she stays there. She's not doing this, she's not doing that. And you're observing what's going on, and you're just stating the facts, you might say. Now, you slide automatically. We all slide from observing into editorializing. And when we get into editorializing, it's usually, you know, we, we, we jump to concepts. We jump to assumptions. Uh, we jump to thinking we understand what's going on. We jump to interpretations. Oh, she's, she's now doing this because she really is uh, you know she's trying to deliver us a message that uh, we've screwed up as parents and she's just going to stay here like defiantly and she knows we want her out so this must mean that she's trying to get us angry or she's trying to oppose us and she closes her door when we're around so you know you build a whole case and then as soon as you start to build a case of course you wrap some data around it and say see oh and see that look we have more evidence and next thing you know you're you're thinking this way and then she's thinking differently you don't know how she's thinking and she probably isn't sharing her deep deeper thoughts and she's probably uh you know stuck or ashamed of herself or who knows maybe she's just feeling like i need a long time with no pressure um but whatever it is it isn't what you were thinking i mean you're it would be a chance is one in a million if you actually came up with a hypothesis that was right. I mean, I may be overstating that one in a million, but most of the time when we think we know what's going on in someone else, we certainly aren't observing because observing means that we actually see the sensory data, and we don't. We, we're hypothesizing. So once you get into that, now you get at war. Now the kid says, well, stay out of my room. You don't understand me. You're just blaming me. You don't. Nobody cares about about me you know all you care about is that is how neighbors think or how relatives think or or how you're going to represent me outside or you don't really care about me you think i should be just like you and i'm not like you and all these things come up when you're in in a heated argument and um you get very stuck and so here also what i encourage parents to do and i encourage myself to do is to get back and start with observing, it's like starting with basics, fundamentals. It's like you're, you're running really past what you know, and so you can sit back. I mean, in a way, metaphorically, you sit back instead of leaning forward and trying to tell this person what to do when you don't even know what's going on. I, I've, I've known parents recently that le- would leave the house and leave a list of things for the kid to do the kid would get them and be totally furious. You know, it says, go, go get a driver's license. Um, go do this. You know, uh, you, you, should, you should start uh, doing this kind of work. You should start getting out of the house. And with a person that isn't even close to doing that, and it's so invalidating, but the parent doesn't know it. They're just trying to jumpstart the kid, and they think this is what a parent should do. But really, at that point, I think the wiser thing is first, just stop it. You know, just stop it. Wake up and look and see, oh there's my child, there is my beloved child that I spent the entire childhood with this child, you know, having a lovely time or just seeing some of her great qualities and people appreciated and she she thinks differently but she's really cool and all of this kind of stuff and you're th- and and look and think now now what's she doing? Well, she's in her room. Well, what's she doing in her room? I mean, you're not thinking about that because you're just thinking it's terrible that she's just staying in her room. But actually, you really don't know what's going on. So you almost have to do what I was encouraging you to do with these groups of people. Is, uh, but in this case, you are one group. You are the parent group. And you go and, and, and you see if you can hang out without any agenda. And you see how long you can do that. And then you notice, you start to observe not only, oh, she's changed her room around. And then you say, I, oh, I noticed you changed your room around. And then she might find it interesting that you found it interesting. And you might find out something that way. Oh, why, how come, you, did you like it better that way? Or, gee, I notice you're doing this now. Or, What are you doing? I mean, on the computer, what kind of music are you getting into now? And whatever it is, and I don't mean to be being, um, to skirt around the obvious problem. I just mean get into an observing posture where you start to just see reality as it comes in through your five senses and as it manifests inside yourself in your somatic experience and your mental experience, your thought experience. And you just start to see that and sort of start over each day and say, what's going on here? And at a certain point, um, you might come up with an idea or you might just find that actually by just observing in the least offensive, least assuming, least hypothesizing way, that actually you've changed the interaction. And there's a good chance you will change the interaction because you haven't been doing that. You, and at first you might be mistrusted, that you're doing some kind of gimmick and actually you just want her out, you know, working or something like that. But, so a t- time has to go by when you do this. Um, so I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in uh, observing and thinking that when people try it briefly, it probably wasn't enough. Um, and when people try it partially, It probably wasn't enough, and what happens is somebody tries this for a while, and they get really frustrated, but they aren't regulating their own frustration. So how do you do that? Well, observing is your first tool. As soon as you start to get really frustrated with your kid and think, God, I'm doing everything I can to not be intrusive and not violate and not push and just be with her, and look, she's still doing all the same things, and not only that, she's even meaner to me. All right, so you get into that, and, and then you start to build up resentment. And really what you need to be doing as soon as you start to editorialize and as soon as you start to have the generation of negative emotions and assumptions, um, you need to observe those. You just turn your spotlight of observation from your kid to your to your own mind, your own body, and you realize, oh, oh. Now I'm having the thought that she's trying to defy me. Now I'm having the thought that she just, you know, she resists everything I say. Uh, Now I'm realizing that I just want her out. I realize that she's partly right. I do have the thought. I just want her out. It would be a big relief if she was out. And you start to just observe your own mind and, you know, it helps to defuse. Uh, some of the tension not all the tension because some of it is probably very well placed it's a parental function to be concerned about your child Um, but at the at this stage it's been counterproductive the way you've been doing it so you're trying to kind of go back to basics and just be there and then let your child uh, evolve Uh, the next step on their own unless there's really a uh, a very pressing need, there's something dangerous, there's something unsafe, it's a high-risk situation, and and some movement has to be done, then you have to get more active and directive and and things like that. But in a lot of these situations, it's just a long-term situation where the parent never lets go of the agenda and never stops worrying and never stops being anxious, and, and the kid knows it. And the kid is just kind of like, I'm so tired of having this person who acts all burdened about me and thinks they know better what I should be doing. And so it's really trying to get out of that transaction by dropping the rope yourself. And then I think if you do that along with some observation and done in a way that's not judgmental, um, you know, things, I think things have a better chance. You have a better chance of coming up with something. Um So I'm going to step back from that. Um, I I, I went on just really trying to say that this problem about having two parties be at war with each other or upset with each other or in conflict, and it's irresolvable, and there's many versions of it, is absolutely where we should be in this podcast, and anyone else that has any questions like that or related to that within your own life, within somebody that you know or with... In your family or whatever, I mean, feel free to email me because uh, we're not because I'm about to shift over to what was going to be my specific teaching agenda today. Um, to email me about it and um, and then I could speak to it uh, to some degree, and uh, we can also uh, in the future too have times when when uh, people listening are not muted um, technologically, so to speak. So uh, then we could have a dialogue about it. So I'm going to ask Mark, who's overseeing this uh, podcast, if he can now – oh, actually, I was going to do this, right? I was just going to now put everybody on mute, if there is everybody. There might just be almost nobody, in which case people will listen to this in the future. But um, I'm going to put it on mute, so I'm not going to be able to hear any of you, but you'll still be able to hear me, okay? So here goes, and we'll go until uh, 5 o'clock Eastern Time. Hey, I just was informed by Mark uh, through a text that um, I muted myself as well as you. I don't know why that happened this time, but you know what? I'm going to leave it on unmuted so that you can hear me. I'm so sorry. Um, I don't know why that happened, but that's it. That's for another time. So uh, that means first I was just thanking people for tuning into the podcast and for sending me feedback about it. Um, specific and general um, it's very helpful to me Uh, I've never done this before I think this is the fifth podcast Um, then I want to say that uh, next week I had uh, I had indicated in things I sent out advertising about this podcast that I would be meeting uh, doing this uh, next week um, and then again which would be uh, December whatever 13th and then um, Today's the 6th, right? 13th. And then I was going to do it again on, I think, the 27th or something, um, or close to that. So here's the fact, though. I'm not going to do it next week, uh, and I'll put out an announcement about that in the places where I announce this. Um, I'm not going to do it next week, so there won't be a live one next week because uh, I'm going to be in another country. I'll be teaching DBT in Italy at that time, and I thought it would be cool to do it from there, but I'm running into technical problems in making it work and I just don't want to run a risk of it not working out. So, um next uh next week there won't be one and the following week um uh there won't be one. I'll still be there and the following week there won't be one. I'll just be getting back home. So actually, the next uh podcast after this one is not going to be until um January 3rd, I think. And I'll and I'll put announcements out about that. And what that one's going to be about is going to continue with these uh, sort of repertoire of skills, of uh, tools for coping with being in difficult situations that are drawn from DBT. And in particular right now, I'm going through the skills that come from uh, mindfulness, that are part of mindfulness. And uh, observing is such a huge part of that. It's one of the biggest parts. Um, So... Uh, therefore, I'm, I've spent the last couple weeks on that, and today I'm transitioning to uh, the skill of describing. But what you don't know if you don't know DBT is I've already partially covered the other ones, And I, but I'm going to make them all clear enough so that all of you have these six skills to use um, and then, this, then the central concept around which they are grouped. Then we're going to get into mid-January, and I just want to let you know because I've lined up uh, a guest Uh, to join me and have a conversation for two weeks in a row and I think those weeks are January 17th and 24th but I'll be confirming that and that is that a colleague um, that if you're a DBT person you might know her or have even uh, been to a training of hers or or read a book by her is Cedar Coons who lives in Santa Fe and used to live in North Carolina And has done uh, really important work in DBT, both uh, one of the first randomized controlled trials and uh, uh, looking at veterans um, um, who had borderline personality disorder. And then she's been doing decades of mindfulness practice uh, very formally, very seriously. And now she's doing a lot of teaching herself, and she wrote a book on using mindfulness to regulate emotions. I highly recommend it. It's really good. Um, and uh, so Cedar's going to come on, but it's not to specifically talk about that. It's something much more vulnerable. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, a sister of Cedar uh, committed suicide. And Cedar is now writing, a, 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 um, she hasn't talked much about this outside of what must be her own intimate circle, um, but now she's actually writing a blog and I, she's had three posts I've been following it, and she's writing about what the experience has been like. She's really been describing it. And um, and, uh, this, and so she's uh, graciously agreed to come on to talk with me about um, this experience of losing her sister in this way, what it's been like to, uh, to go into that, to go through that, to come through that and where she's at now, and and what what has helped her cope with that, I think is going to be really important for all of us to think about with her, um, to listen to, what she, what she's done to cope with that, including things related to mindfulness, but I th- I'm sure it's other things too, and just sort of she's a wise person to begin with, so I'm just looking forward to the perspective. So I thought I'd let you know in advance about that uh, in mid January. Now. Um, let me, uh, let me now ground us back in these uh, tools, these six tools. So one is observing, and I think if you've listened to the last two podcasts, you've really gotten a heavy dose of this, talked out from, uh, in, in various ways and with a number of examples of using observing in difficult situations. Um, and it doesn't just have to be difficult situations. Since I've been teaching this the last few weeks, I've been finding myself observing uh, more than ever, Uh, In a daily way, I don't mean through meditation. I mean that is a specialized application of observing, but Observing during the day is just noticing what's coming into our nervous system And it's noticing things and I've I now have seen more things that I all all, I usually see anyway but I've now seen them more (laughs) with more detail and really catching things as they come into your sensory system and just being there. It sort of brings you into the present moment because that moment has whatever is coming into your nervous system. So um, it isn't just to use it when you're in distress, but it can be to use it to ground yourself, and actually it can be quite pleasurable. So um, observing, I just want to say a few things uh, to be, in making a transition from observing to its close cousin describing um observing i just made some notes down here is is basically the same as opening your eyes it's it's opening your whole nervous system it's opening your sensory system it's seeing what's around it's hearing it's smelling tasting and touching what's around and it's sensing what's inside as things move around inside so to speak you're you're, you get all kinds of sensations and awareness of of your of your innards Uh, Another metaphor is is observing is repeatedly waking up so that you don't sleep through your life. You actually wake up to what's actually going on in this moment, as opposed to being caught in circles of thought, which I find myself doing a lot of the time. And uh, and now and then it's really waking up and saying, oh, well, what's going on right here, right now? During this, I've been thinking about uh, how we uh, pay attention to the news, and uh, the news has been, in many ways, alarming uh, for a while in lots of different ways. And, and to be paying attention to that news, I realize that's not really the news. That's really the editorializing, almost always, of somebody else with some already digested point of view. It's, it's usually about things that we aren't actually directly exposed to. So we're observing somebody else's news, and really the only news we observe is what's coming into our eyes, our ears, uh, and everything, all of our senses. So I realized, you know, I don't have to go very far to uh, watch the news. The news is right here. It's the only real news that I ever see. Um, another metaphor is paying attention. Uh, really just pay just means paying attention um, or else missing out on things, Attention is one thing we have some degree of control over. Some other things we don't. Um, and it's, uh, as I said the, one of the last couple times, it's coming to our senses, uh, which is a phrase used um, to kind of like, let's r- return to our sane self, but coming to our senses has this specific meaning in here of really like pay attention to the, what's coming in through our five senses and and our internal sensing and focus on things and at the same time be open things just flowing through our mind now observing um, also I I find that it keeps us grounded um, and uh, in the in in what's happening now uh, and then we can shift our observing to what goes on in our thoughts our assumptions our uh, emotions our urges Uh, if you had that child that I was talking about that isn't leaving home at all you know, you could notice your emotional response and observe it. You could observe your urge to throw your kid out, observe your urge to do everything for your kid, uh, whatever it is. But it's sort of like um, if you observe them, then you have more options for coping with those urges. Um And there's no real negative side effects. It's such an antidote to stress, and it has so many positive functions that we should all just be observing so much of the time. Um, And a final thing I'll say, because if anybody's listening from the world of DBT and other evidence-based treatments, it's really, in a way, the only evidence-based way to live because we're actually observing the data and we're living in response to an interaction with actually seeing what's going on Right now Um, so I'm really uh, I had a couple more things to say about observing but I'm I'm my guess is that it's uh, that I'm going to hold off on that because I want to shift over to describing Um, I do want to say one one application of observing and describing as I get into this happened when I was uh, with my family in uh, I think March or April we were in we visited iceland on vacation and we um, got on snowmobiles this is my two boys and my wife and myself we had two snowmobiles the kids were in the front we were in the back of each snowmobile and uh, then we took off with this tour group across the largest glacier in uh, iceland and uh, we went at what i considered extremely high speeds which my kids thought was fabulous and i was literally terrified from the first moment i don't know i just this is not my thing and i'm on the back imagining we're about to turn over we're about to turn over we're going to flip and um thinking and i'm and and imagining what that's going to be like and and just gripping with all of my might hanging on to things i also had had a herniated disc a few weeks before that but it was just better enough to do this but i had then I was bouncing and I was holding myself up with my arms so that my back wasn't bouncing onto the, onto my butt. And so it was scary. And, uh, at first I thought I'm going to have to stop. And I, I told my the son that was driving me, I said, look, you've got to take it easy with me. I am scared. And then he didn't fully respond to that. I had to say it again and then he responded better, but I was still scared even with what everybody else was doing. So, um, what i did that helped save the day for me was uh deliberately and consciously i thought look charlie everybody else is doing this um people do this every day you are terrified but chances are there's not that much to be terrified about even though your body is telling you to be terrified and so you know what just notice and i just started to observe my terror and I observed this, the stiff muscles that I had while I was holding myself in place and realized they didn't have to be that stiff. My whole body was like a sheet of rock. I mean, I was like so tense. And I realized that's serving no function now, now that I'm noticing it. Um, so actually, just hold the part stiff that's holding me up off of the uh, snowmobile. And then I'm observing the fear, and I'm observing that I'm having all of this imagery about crashing. And, I, and then I realize, you know, that's not such a good idea, Charlie, if you have any control over this. Like, it's certainly not helping to have that imagery unless I'm going to stop. So, you know, can I just sort of dampen that imagery and sort of look out there at the beauty uh, that, that other people seem to be doing? and uh, noticed other things, and I was able somewhat to do it. I was still scared, and, the, and my fear was still there, but it did diminish over time, and I was, uh, I was so glad when we stopped for a break, and then we got back, and when we stopped, the, um, the leader of the tour, which was like a 60-year-old woman who's done this her whole life, came over to me, and she said, you look pretty scared. I mean, are, do you want to ride on, on the back of mine, and we'll just go really safe and slower, I said, you know, that's really nice, but actually, no, um, What I, it's just fear. And I couldn't believe I heard myself saying that. I mean, I just said, it's just fear. And I thought, yeah, I had really just observed fear down to the point and described fear down to the point that I could say that convincingly for myself. And then the rest of the ride was actually even better. Um, I was able to start uh, noticing what was around. So, okay, Um I want to tell you, describing grows out of ob- observing. And describing it just means this. Um, oh, let, me, let me say how. I guess I'll say how you describe. Um, it's when you have been observing or you're making an observation and then you name it it's as simple as that it's like you put words on it it's not simple as you'll hear as the pressure builds in your emotional life it's hard to just describe but it really is grounding Uh, it sort of adds I mean if observing is a kind of a receptive skill you're just letting things land in your nervous system and you're just noticing them before you've added anything else, if possible. Though I don't think we can quite do that. I think as soon as we get things, that, stimuli that come in, you know, they immediately recruit um, memories and, and language and uh, impressions. But to the degree that we can, observing is just seeing it come in. It's, it's experiencing. So that's why I mean it's, it's very active, but in that way it's receptive. And this, on the other hand, is interventionist. You're taking an observation, so to speak, and then you're describing it. You're you're using words. You're describing it in words. I guess you could use describing in painting pictures uh, or doing a dance, an interpretive dance. But basically, most of the time, what we're talking about here right now is words. And so you're naming it. You're saying, you know, fear. And then you're saying you know, tension uh, in my uh, entire body, uh, my heart pounding in my chest, um, images of uh, destruction and uh, and and crashing, uh, pain, anticipating pain. Um, these are all um, describe describers, uh, descriptors um, of just naming things, and. Um, and I'll say in a minute why, why you would even do that, because it's really a valuable thing to do. But it really is just adding words and labeling and sticking to the facts is another part of this. Our thoughts slip so easily from facts or what are close to facts to getting further away from facts uh, just without us knowing it. We think we're still thinking and saying facts when actually we've slid into assumptions and we've slid into polemics, and we've slid into our position about things, and we've slid into our reactions, you know, we're no longer actually stating facts. When we say about that, uh, that child, you know, about her, you might say, oh, what might you say? You might say, um, you know, you're just wasting your life. Well, that's totally not true. I mean, that's, that's not reality. It depends on so many things, but that's a concept, and it's a damning concept. And so as soon as you say that, you're convinced you're right and so you think you're stating a fact but actually if you stop and do observing and describing and you just observe what is sen- what sensorily true you're, you're not going to come across wasting anything you're just going to you're just going to come across what's being done and how and what you're seeing and then you're going to realize oh but I have all of these thoughts get triggered this is a waste and other things like that and once you realize that it already changes things and it's one of the values of describing is that it helps delineate, it draws that line between factual reality as close as you can get to it, and then the kind of like fictional editorializing that goes on automatically based on, on how our minds work and how our past was, etc. So you're sticking to facts. So you say things like if you get sad, you might say, I observe sadness arising in me. Um, I notice tension growing in my face and my neck. I notice fear in this situation without knowing what is causing it. Um, so obs- observing is to sense all of these things without words, and then describing is just to name the words. And, uh, and, and that means, of course, that you cannot genuinely describe things in this current use of what I mean by describing, and it's what I think is the most helpful way. Um, you can't describe things if you haven't observed them. There are lots of things we say uh, as if we're observing them but, but, or, and describing what we're observing that actually we're not observing. Like when we say, so-and-so has an angry face, well, that's, not, uh, that's not describing. Describing would be to name the features of the face that lead you to then have the hypothesis that the person's angry. But some people's faces look angry when they're anxious, and some people's faces look anxious when they're angry. And yet we do it all the time. And if somebody looks at us and doesn't quickly respond to us, and their face is neutral, we jump. We often say, why don't you care about me? Why aren't you responding? And it's sort of like there's something going into that where we're not just observing and describing what's going on we're jumping immediately and and we don't hear that jump so the process of describing helps us to see the difference as soon as you start to say you know i notice my anxiety arising in me about my child i notice my desire to have my child get a job i notice a cluster of thoughts about How my child's life is going downhill I notice concerns about whether our parenting has caused this all of this is absolutely upfront observing and describing and it helps when you name that your thoughts are your thoughts and your assumptions are your assumptions and what you're sensing through your sensory processes is actually sensory processes Um, and uh, you know, we, we this helps to undo a lot of mistakes we make of misunderstanding people. Like, um, you know, uh, you might say to somebody uh, when you don't trust how they're regarding you, you could say, so you think I'm lying, don't you? I know you think I'm lying. I can tell. But in fact, you cannot observe that another person thinks that you're lying. You can only guess that. But it would be a describer to say, you know there's certain things going on in me and and what I see in the way that you said that that make me think that you think I'm lying then the person would say no that's you know but it's a huge difference interpersonally to just say like um, if you were to say somebody when you raise your eyebrows and purse your lips like that I start thinking that you think I'm lying and so you, that's a really a describe, and then it's like describing what your thought is. So if you describe your thoughts as thoughts, I have the thought that such and such, um, the thought has come up in me that such and such, it's really clarifying, it really is grounding, it really helps you not slide into treating thoughts as if they're facts, um, which happens so easily, you know. And so you can check things out in your own mind by describing things. Um, I notice I have four minutes so I just want to say something right now about thoughts because so much of this has to do with thoughts and thinking Um, when you're uh, going about your day athletes if you're anything like me uh, you're just generating thoughts a lot of the time if you stopped and tuned in at any time you'd realize my god it just never stops some people think of one type of thing or another type of thing, but thinking is going on. There is a running commentary that most of us have under the radar almost all the time. And it's affecting us a lot, even if it's under the radar. And it is not factual description a lot of the time. I mean, it could be. You could just be going around saying, now there's this, now there's this, now I notice this, now I notice that. But that's not what most of us do. Most of us are thinking uh, about some uh, perpetual agenda that we have and how we feel about things and what people are doing. And we're just generating these things. So if we ever want to just kind of like come back to our senses, we could just sort of tune into that and say, you know, what I do, I do it when I'm meditating and now I do it sometimes when I'm not meditating for the reason I'm talking about right now. If I'm caught up in thoughts and and it's causing me to, you know, get a upset stomach... <laughs> Uh, because of the worries that I'm thinking about, if I just stop and I sit down, or I'm just standing somewhere, I'm taking a walk, and I just say the word in my mind. I just say thinking, thinking, and it brings my attention to the fact that I have a running commentary of thoughts, and I'm noticing my thoughts. I might say what kind of thinking I'm doing, thinking about worrying, worrying. But if I'm think, if I just say thinking, the the amazing thing and I don't know if I'm just lucky about this or it's kind of magical that but it's like if I just say thinking my thoughts kind of momentarily just dissolve sort of like I shot them out of the sky like a skeet shooter it's like my thoughts you know whether they're great thoughts or not great thoughts good thoughts bad thoughts whatever it is it's just it sort of interrupts my thinking by labeling it as thinking and then it takes the wind out of out of out of the sails of those thoughts uh, and some of those are worries. If I just say, you know, my mind is filled with worries. I'm, I'm, I'm spending a good part of today uh, with worrying. And even saying that to myself now puts the worrying on a different status. It no longer seems like the worrying is the reality. It seems like the worrying is something I'm doing in response to reality. So uh, we're going to be stopping at this point. When, when I stop, when I start again, I'll be, I'm going to. Do a little bit more on describing, and then I'm going to talk uh, about this other amazing skill, participate, and uh, and it, with examples of that, and put the three skills together in in talking about coping with difficult situations. And um, so I look forward to talking to you guys again, to whoever's listening, or whoever does listen in the future to these. And um, yeah, so have a really good holiday. Have a great. Uh, Hanukkah, have a great Christmas, uh, a new year, and I will talk to you, if you're a live listener, so to speak, uh, on January 3rd. Okay? Bye-bye.